Welcome back to Women Without Kids, a podcast created by me, Ruby Warrington, from research interviews that I conducted for my forthcoming book of the same title, which will be out in March 2023. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Nicole LaPera, aka The Holistic Psychologist. Nicole has been instrumental in popularizing concepts such as intergenerational healing, inner child work, and reparenting, all of which are very much at play in conversations about our reproductive potential. Not least because the way we were parented can't not have an impact on how we feel about becoming parents ourselves. Like me, Nicole knew from an early age that she did not want to be a mum. And having read an early proof of Women Without Kids, she told me that the book had helped her put the puzzle pieces of what can feel like this deviant inner knowing together. She shares what that process looked like for her. And we also discussed the potential impact on future generations of there being more conscious parents in the world. That is, more people engaging with their role as parents as part of their self-healing. If you're familiar with Nicole's work, you'll know she is an absolute wealth of information on neuroscience, nervous system dynamics, and attachment theory. And you'll probably find yourself pausing this episode multiple times to take notes. I'm excited to hear what you think. For now, this is the one and only Dr. Nicole LaPera. Nicole, so much of your work is focused on disrupting conditioned behaviors and patterns that are keeping us stuck much of which we are imprinted with in childhood. So in Women Without Kids, I have a whole chapter where I essentially posit that not having children is one very literal way to disrupt intergenerational patterns, what some people even I've started to hear calling intergenerational curses, which sounds kind of intense, but that's just some other language I've heard used to describe these kind of inherited um, behaviors, beliefs, coping mechanisms that can become calcified and sort of dysfunctional over time when they're no longer appropriate for the situations that we're in and the lives that we're living. And so whether it's a conscious decision or you're consciously aware of that, whether this is even like an unconscious kind of driver behind our ambivalence maybe about whether to embark on parenthood, it's almost like something is ending with us. And I'm just really curious Um to kick off here, to hear your thoughts on that as a concept. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually, as I, as much as I think I like did have a reaction hearing you use that word curse, um, the immediate next thought that I had was a little bit of gratitude that people, more people are starting to see the role of our past generations. Um, And I'm saying this speaking from, especially coming from my field where at least when I was in my training program, we were predominantly taught, as is often taught in the medical field, that those patterns, other people, humans, relationships, environment, if we want to group it into the big macro canopy, that doesn't matter as much as genetics. So what I think I've heard for so long and why I feel hopeful and grateful hearing that these intergenerational patterns are being deemed a curse, it's because for so long we had this idea that our genetics were the curse and that we couldn't actually control or change. So to speak to your question, then Mm -hmm. um, the way we can break the patterning is a understand that we were impacted mainly through our environment and all of the different ways our caregivers showed up and all of the then different ways we've adapted. And that's what we really mean when we're either carrying the curse or the pattern or whatever it is throughout generations. And so again, we can make conscious choices, in my opinion, at any age to not only bear witness to these very patterned habitual, like you're saying, sometimes even out of our conscious awareness, this is all I know myself to be. So this is who Mm -hmm. I believe I am. We can become aware that that isn't who we are. They're coming from the modeling for many of us of past generations. And ultimately then we can begin to make new choices, whether it is to not have children altogether um, so that we're not passing on those very patterned ways of being, or those of us who do decide to have children can obviously then consciously begin to show up and create change in the way they're showing up in the environment then that they're constructing, if you will, or creating around these little humans and similarly break these pattern or curses um, with children involved. Though, of course, you know, not having children, I think can be for many of us a very empowering way um, to heal ourselves and to create that much needed generational change. Right. And in a way it feels sort of extreme, but I also came upon another sort of layer of awareness around that as I was in the writing process. My mother 
was a self-healer in the 1980s, right? Before this was widely kind of a, sort of like a more common practice, let's say, a, a practice that you have helped to sort of popularize and, and bring awareness to and, and invite people into. But my mom in the 1980s was into all natural medicine. This was before the internet, before you could research <laughs> homeopathy or find yourself going down on some kind of rabbit hole about acupuncture or like even therapy, right? And so this kind of interest in natural medicine, organic food led to her going into therapy in the 90s, um, again, before it was kind of like popular, especially in the UK, which led again to her becoming a conscious parent when I, by the time that I was in my teens. And so much of her work, her self-work, her self-healing was around her breaking her dysfunctional patterning. And I sort of feel like in a way she, her doing that, cleared the path for me. She sort of broke a lot of those patterns on my behalf. And I feel like throughout my life, people have kind of looked at me as a real trailblazer and been like, you're so unafraid to go against the grain, right? This is like, you know, with my whole work around the numinous and popularizing mysticism, my whole work with Sober Curious, now being unapologetically a woman without kids. I've always been like this. This is what I've... And I sort of can't help but thank my mother for doing a lot of that intergenerational pattern breaking on my behalf. And I wonder um, what you think could potentially be the impact for future generations of so many more people engaging with their self-healing now, particularly conscious parents who are engaged in breaking those intergenerational patterns. I mean, I think, you know, the scope is is really um, anything ultimately in terms of change. And just hearing you talk, Ruby, I'm really relating because in a lot of ways, my mom, who was... I imagine much older than your mom. She was born in 1940, um, very much was interested in and supplements were very much a part of my home dialogue, though ultimately, you know, there was a lot of still Western medicine and my mom going kind of through the system in terms of her chronic illness. But it was a thought and very similar to you. I do have the idea that that was really impactful for me. You know, it kind of gave me experience or kind of it introduced me to these newer concepts or what at that time were newer concepts. And then of course, I do believe it kind of built a foundation that I dove deeper into. And as I'm watching, I mean, I even saw when I was watching social media and how it was being used several years ago before I even created the Holistic Psychologist account um, and got curious about how I could begin to you know, speak this new message of holistic healing, begin to share my story. Um, and I went online and I, I wasn't necessarily sure um, what the if the how it would be received to really put it simply both in my field and with the collective when I saw really early on it was being overwhelmingly affirmed in so many different ways hearing from other humans like me and like you who were either had exposure from their parents or on their own journeys really beginning to understand underlying causes and more holistic ways to heal the mind, body, and soul. So for me, that was really affirming that the collective was beginning to question um, the modalities of healing that we once only solely relied on and making room for a new way of being. And ultimately, to answer your question, I think that the outcomes can are, are, are endless um, pure transformation in terms not only of so many of us beginning to uncover the root causes of things that we might have had diagnoses for and you know been reliant on different supports or medications or things to to relieve. And again, it's not to say that's not part of a continued healing journey for some of us, but for others, it really does open more choices, more options of how to create healing. So from everything of resolving symptoms that for me, that was very much part of my journey. Mm -hmm. I can't remember a time where I wasn't anxious, um, where I didn't try to self-soothe or cope with my anxiety through what is traditionally known as kind of OCD-like calming behaviors. And now, you know, many decades later, those symptoms, and I'm a normal human, I get anxious at times, but I don't, you know, resonate with that kind of embodied, I'm an anxious human anymore. So everything from resolving for some of us lifelong symptoms, giving us new choices with how to navigate stress and our emotions and therefore our relationships that ultimately on the other end of the spectrum can lead to complete transformation. Again, for those of us that whether or not we're having kids or not, we're interpersonal creatures, which means that we're relating with other humans in some type of relationship. And as we change, as far as I believe, at least 
we change then our way of being in the world. So even if you don't have children to kind of start that domino process of transformation, you're going to be changing your your relationships and your communities by doing the work to transform yourself. Yes. And as you say, like the ripple effect of that going forward, thinking forward in the jet for the generations to come. I just don't think we can even really imagine what that right. world looks like because all we've known is yes. so much of this dysfunction and yes. um that has that has been imprinted in us. Yes. And to speak to the point too, even you're bringing up imagination just to tack on that. Mm. I agree with you because one of the byproducts of trauma is we actually do lose access to the ability to imagine and create a future that is you know, up to us, like in my opinion, whatever we think of, we can create the change to create in our lives. So when you say imagining, I mean, the, a traumatized human, we don't have access to creativity. We don't have access to the part of our brain that even allows us to imagine that future. So in a very neuroscience-based way, as I always like to plug a little bit, what you're saying is so accurate. Until we heal, we can't imagine this future that we can then begin to create into. And when we do heal, then we do actually neurologically gain access to that incredible ability that we all have inherently as part of us, but so many of us don't have access to. Right. Because we've been in this survivalism, yes. which is learned again, which is about just kind of mm -hmm. manage what we've got in front of us and make it as okay yes. as it can be, because this is as good as it's going to get sort of thing. Right. Yes. Yes. So as I mentioned, my mom only really came to her self-healing work by the time I was in my teens. So when I think back to my younger childhood, which really are the kind of the core formative years, I suppose, there was still a lot of that kind of family dysfunction under the surface and, and very much unexamined. And I mean, when I really sat with my deep, deep why for being a woman without kids, I realized that a big part of me just didn't want to replicate my early experiences of family life. I also then realized that this wasn't an option that many women in the past generations even had. Like there was no option but to replicate what we knew as family or to even reimagine, to use go back to the imagination thing, what family could be like for us, right? Um and it wasn't necessarily because my childhood was especially traumatic, but I remember having a strong sense, like from very, very early young, that I just wanted my freedom. I just wanted to be free to be me and to live my life how I wanted to live my life. And I didn't think that family would be a, a foundation for me to be able to do that because family felt so sort of restricting and limiting. And I just wondered before we started recording, you, you know, you were mentioning that you like me have known from a young age that you didn't want to be a mother and that you were destined to be a woman without kids. I'm wondering if any of that sort of resonates with you personally, or if even if that's something that comes up amongst your readership and amongst, you know, your kind of audience. Yeah, I think there's, you know, a lot of different, and I think your book does a really beautiful job at unpacking the different influences that could lead us into that idea or that ultimate decision to not have kids. And to speak to your point, right? I had this family childhood experience and I want to avoid replicating that. So mm -hmm. I, you know, don't then want to have children or I make the decision not to have children. And just as easily, it can be the opposite. Like you're mm -hmm. sharing so much of, right. I had this experience in childhood and I want to now give my children the opposite or, you know, give them or meet their needs in a way that I didn't have met. So we try a reparative, I think, function, mm -hmm. or we have the idea that our new family system will, you know, be offer a reparative um, Which function. was my, my mother's approach, actually. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then there's everywhere, every kind of iteration of that in between. Mm. And yeah, so to speak to your point, I can't remember, as long as I can remember, I was never a child who played with dolls. I didn't, to, to my memory, at least, you know, have a super maternal instinct. Um, and how much of that was impacted by, you know, my family structure. And for me, the predominant um, or the most impactful experience in my family structure was growing up with a, an emotionally, you know, misattuned or a mother who was in her own state of shutdown because after living in survival mode, based on her own past experiences, trauma she experienced in childhood, compound it by having my sister who was 15 years older than me and who was chronically ill since she was a very young child, a lot of health-related anxiety. So, Ultimately, you know, I think 
all of that impacting, you know, my mom's ability to be emotionally present. And by the time I came along, when she was 42 years old, she was largely absent because she was completely shut down. So Mm. ultimately, yes, I have the idea that somewhere deep down, what I'm saying was so intuitive, I'm not having children, was probably impacted by the absence um, of this maternal figure, right? Of if we really want to simplify it, the experience of a mom in an emotional sense of the word. In other senses, in terms of her physical presence, in terms of meeting my basic needs, you know, making sure I was fed and my mom was at all of my softball games. So there was a presence, but there wasn't an emotional presence. And without that modeling, you know, I would be lying if I said that they didn't have some version of an impact um, on my decision to have children. And interestingly enough, though, my sister did decide to have children as long as I can remember, because she was very involved um, in my childhood and helping raise me, if you will, for a very long time. And I think this also kind of helped me come to that comfort in my decision not to have children, which was evident from from childhood. My sister actually proclaimed that she too, I was her kid, is how she would joke and say it. I'm not going to have one of my own. And she didn't end up having my nephew. I think she got pregnant when she was 40 or 41. So for a large portion of my relationship with my sister, I had the modeling. And I'm sharing this because I know so many of us are modeled a pressure, right? We're actually directly told all of the reasons why we have kids and we can't wait. You know, our grand, our moms are telling us we can't wait to be a grandparent or our, our dad is telling us that. So I had a lack of that. I didn't have anyone pushing me, pressuring me. And I actually had my sister somewhat modeling that it was okay to proclaim that you're not having children and to be comfortable in that decision. So I think because of, because most things are complicated and as humans, Mm. there's not one factor, Mm. but I think compound it with all of, all of those factors. I, you know, kind of had that intuitive instinct that I wasn't really wanting to. um, And then that was affirmed that that was okay. I, I can't imagine, or I would wonder how it would have been if I did have a family that was pressuring me um, and if I would have felt at more conflict within myself. But very thankfully, um, I didn't. And there was a lot of ways in my development that I always presented a little differently than my family. I was a younger generation. I expressed different ideas. So again, I had a bit of comfort in difference that it allowed me, I think, to embody that choice without the conflict that your book, I think, does a very beautiful job in terms of illustrating how conflictual it can be for others. Yeah. Thank you so much for outlining all of that. I feel like there's so many strands of your story that people will be able to relate to in different ways. And that's what I just love about storytelling or what you could call story medicine in a way. It's almost like hearing the specifics of another person's story, even though it's so unique and individual to you, there'll just be little touch points that people will be able to relate to that will help them explain or make sense of why things have been the way they are for them. Also fascinating, like there's so much in in what you described that I can relate to personally. And also I I conducted this online survey. So many people um, expressed similar family dynamics as actually having played a role in just their feelings about motherhood. And it makes absolute sense to me. It seems so logical that the way we experienced mother would have mothering would have a huge impact on our desire or about whether to become a mother ourselves. You know, it just makes so much sense. And like I said, it's only really been in the past five decades, literally, which where women have even had the choice. And often, as you say, that choice has been incredibly um put under incredible amounts of pressure from external sources, whether, you know, politically due to family, financially, et cetera, et cetera, all of which, as you rightly say, I unpack in depth in my book. So something else I have only recently started to see being discussed is people choosing not to have children because of mental health issues, perhaps because they feel like they won't be able to properly care for their children or even that they're worried about passing on conditions that are thought to have a genetic component, such as depression, anxiety disorders, or even bipolar, these sorts of issues, for example. And looking at this conversation begin to bubble, I'm thinking some people might say that this is kind of internalized ableism, like people who have certain conditions or certain mental health issues shouldn't be parents, right? But to me, it also seems very realistic to actually be able to make an assessment of your capacity for the vocation of parenting, which is extremely demanding, physically, emotionally, financially, mentally, all the things. Um, And I guess 
I'm curious to hear your advice to anybody who's maybe experiencing those concerns. Am I, do I have the capacity to be a parent based on some um, health issues, physical or mental health issues that I might be experiencing? I think I want to start with answering this kind of piggybacking on something really profound, Um, quite simple even, but really profound when you really let it settle that you just acknowledge, which is how big of a job parenting is. (sighs) how much resources, whether or not it's objective in terms of time, money, housing, support, or subjective in terms of emotional bandwidth, ability to tolerate your own stress so that you can show up in that attuned way, right? That my mother couldn't because her own stress was too overwhelming. She lacked the coping skills. And so of no fault of her own, she very much well-intentioned, wanted to be there in a a loving presence for me, but lacking those resources, she was just simply unable. And the reason I'm answering that and in a more global way answering this question is because I don't think, I think very few parents like really understand for many different reasons of all of the decisions that, as opposed to like the decisions we're talking about of not having kids, Mm -hmm. many different factors, you know, in terms that that affect our decision to have children. I, I think that I'm not sure, let me put it that way without, you know, assigning. And I'm not sure if it's really kind of understood the scope of the job of parenting one child, let alone multiple, right, children. So mm-hmm. saying that to say, um, it's a it's a it's a huge job. You need resources, you need time, and more importantly, most importantly, in my opinion, you need the emotional ability right? To tolerate stress, to navigate your life in a safe way. So that that environment that I was talking about that we now know plays an important role. Genetics, of course, are part of our journey. Mm. So to speak to your point, right? We have genetic components that do impact our mood, our, our, our brain functioning. You know, when we're talking about depression and things like that, anxiety, that's part of the story. But then those genetic components interact with the environment around us. So if we're not having a caretaker who is able to more consistently than not make sure that their own needs are met so that they can be a balanced, calm, present, attuned parent, then chances are right there is going to be some impact on children. So I think kind of globally, just really being aware of and celebrating everyone who does choose to have children and all, everything that kind of goes in to that, I think it's just an important decision and to be conscious of, and to then really be radically honest with yourself in terms of, well, how does your life look? How, you know, how consistent are your needs being met? Do you even have the resources accessible to you? And one of the main reasons why um, a large portion of daily content that we, you know, I put out on the platform is is free, um, mm-hmm. really to tap into the communities quite globally that don't have this access to even this knowledge, these supportive tools. One of the reasons why, you know, I created the hashtag of the global community self healers and now have the opportunity for people to join in a membership, but don't have to is for community, for support, right? And if you don't have that, and now you're signing up to bring another human into the world that you're going to be tasked because human infants are completely dependent. They can't meet any of their needs on their own. So it is really the container then of that relationship um, that's going to either serve them in terms of, and not perfection, Um, There's something known as good enough parenting, where Mm. more often than not making sure that you're able to provide not only the physical resources to sustain physical life, but those emotional resources, if you don't have that, right, then just becoming more conscious and intentional around the decision to bring in another human for which you're now responsible for, I think is important. So I appreciate your question because I think it's just something that we need to consider and we need to become conscious of because those other unconscious factors that drive many of us into making any decisions, whether or not it's to have children or not, or what to do with our life are so impactful and come from, again, generations of time and will then impact the environments we create around us. Right. Exactly. It's very interesting. Like I'm very aware that not being a parent myself has given me so much time, energy, and other resources Mm -hmm. to be able Mm -hmm. to funnel into my own self-healing. 
And there's a part in the book where I kind of like, it's interesting that we sometimes call this as like navel gazing. It's almost as if we're looking for kind of like the missing um, umbilical cord. You know, people will in a very derogatory way say, oh, it's so self-focused. It's so self-centered. You know, it's so kind of inward looking. But I'm like, without having done this work, I'm not in a position to function fully and sort of bring my whole self to society and actually live the life that I'm here to live. And another realization I had while I was writing was that it's only now in my middle 40s, having kind of embarked on my own self-healing path in my middle 30s, I feel anywhere near ready enough to take on the task of parenting. And besides the fact that I never really saw myself as a mother, it's just too late. You know, it's just, there's no way that I'm going to try and have a kid now because I I sort of am aware that actually, oh, I probably do have the emotional maturity at this stage in my life to be a parent. <laughs> um, but I just think it's so interesting. Um, I, and I guess I'm, I'm privileged in a way that I haven't ever felt a strong urge to have children. And I guess um, there is a whole chapter around sort of acceptance as well. And for anybody who's maybe... Um, would perhaps like to have a child, but is very aware of the fact that they're not potentially ready, that they don't have the resources to put into parenting and is feeling some sadness or some grief around that. I'm wondering if you could offer any kind of words around just helping people make peace with wherever, whatever their path is, wherever, whatever their procreative outcomes might be um, based on their kind of awareness of the different factors that are playing into that. I think grief Ruby overwhelmingly is part of a healing journey. Um, Whether or not it's we're grieving the children that we won't have decisions we won't make for ourselves, whether we're grieving, you know, aspects of ourselves or a way of being as we're shifting and changing, you know, our patterns. Um, I think grief is ultimately part of healing because we are, you know, coming to terms with realizations with loss. I mean, some of us even at times, you know, into adulthood, we'll go back and grieve, right? For me, the relationship I didn't emotionally have with my mom. So ultimately it's it's creating space and allowing the grief to be present along with whatever other feeling might be wrapped up around the grief as well, because grief is one of those complicated emotions that, you know, can come wrapped up with anger and resentment and, you know, a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sharing and kind of really focusing on this, like pausing to allow the grief to be, because I do think we have a tendency as humans to shame ourselves, to invalidate, to explain away or to argue away why we shouldn't feel the way we feel. And I think allowing ourselves when we're talking about acceptance and, you know, this radical responsibility that also means allowing our feelings to be present to whatever it is that we are seeing or choosing or not choosing. So my suggestion, you know, for anyone is also to make space for the fact that, yes, you might think on some level and you are on some level grieving your decision not to have children, right? So now you're grieving whatever and however long you've imagined what life may or may not have been like with these children. And some of us can create a a whole world now that we will not be living into for a lot of us, it also means expanding into the losses that we've experienced, right? What led us to making those decisions, the wounds, the needs that weren't consistently met in our own childhood, um, or maybe even this the shifting way of being. If we did at one point think we were someone who wanted kids and now we've came to the realization that we don't, right? That's a big shift. We now have to understand a new aspect of ourself and grieve this old idea about ourselves, or this, you know, idea that we're going to be this parent, this mother, this father, or whomever. So mm-hmm. making space for the feelings that come up um, as we're getting clarity on some of the choices that we're making and as we're actioning into those choices, you know, is I think the healing work. And it's also, it, I could, it could sound so simple hearing me say it, but that actually there's deeper things involved that then means, well, Do you even know how to connect with your feelings? Do you know how to navigate your feelings? Do you know how to reach out and have support when you're having feelings that are uncomfortable? And the large majority, you said, you said the word maturity or maturity. And the large majority for the large majority of us adults is we don't. We were never really taught how to navigate our feelings. We're not emotionally mature. We tend to avoid, to distract, or to erupt from our feelings. So as simple as it might sound, we'll just make space for your grief. Mm. For a lot of us, that means learning how to connect 
with our emotions and how to do so safely and how to do so in support or with the support of someone else. Mm. I'm so happy you you brought up grief. It sounds like it sounds so heavy to start talking about grief, but I was so surprised in a way to find myself grieving deeply, deeply throughout the writing process of this book, not grieving, not having a child, but grieving, not having had a family that I wanted to replicate, not having ever had a hug from any of my grandparents, grieving the distance and the separation that the dysfunction in my family has caused between us as individuals, and just grieving the sense of, of separation and loneliness that that's created in many of our lives, my own life. I mean, I was writing it against the backdrop of COVID. So we had literal physical separation <laughs> as well. So it was really intense. And in fact, it happening during that period of time when everything was sort of on pause did allow a lot of space for a lot of feelings to come up. And I cried just so many tears and felt so much rage and anger at the various different factors that had sort of caused and impacted on this family dysfunction, you know, a lot of structural factors, a lot of ideological factors, a lot of economic factors. Um, So really feeling it all was a huge part, actually, and a vital part of accepting the reality as it is and as it presents my reality today. It's important, it's imperative to grieve what needs to be grieved before we can come to a place of acceptance, I think. Yes. And to, I think, open up the possibility, and this is something else that I think is really difficult, is that it might continue this grief or whatever Mm -hmm. feeling it is for you, emotion, it might continue to present itself, right? In waves, in different moments. Um, I don't think that there's a kind of place of doneness. Well, okay. I unpacked my grief and now I won't ever be affected by that anymore. And that's just not true. We don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of days, weeks, months, years. And there could come, you know, an experience that we have that activates that all over again. And Mm. here it is. So Mm -hmm. again, it's kind of ditching this expectation that like one and done, well, I've processed that. So on to this, the next issue, because, you know, we're evolving creatures. Life is always happening around us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what we think we kind of we're done with and processed can kind of come back up at a different time can get, we can get to a deeper layer of it as our life circumstances change around us. And ultimately I think the work is learning how to navigate our emotions regardless of what is coming at us, right? Being able to walk Mm -hmm. into the uncertainty and over time developing the confidence that when grief and a wave of grief comes up again, it, it might be really devastating. It might be really upsetting. It might, you know, kind of make my life come to a halt. However, I over time will have confidence that I have the tools to navigate that wave of grief and then the next wave of anger and ultimately navigate the emotions of life, which are ultimately going to be part of our human experience because we need our emotions. They contain information. They're our guideposts in a lot of ways. And again, I'm just speaking hearing the language, I think a lot of issues, even me, we want doneness, right? I went through this COVID period and it was terrible and devastating and now it's over or and I've accepted coming it. over and I've <laughs> accepted it. So now like on to the next thing. And it's just, that's not how life works. Um, right. We are evolving creatures and it's really developing again, the confidence to navigate the life around us that we can't be certain of. I'm pausing us here to remind you that what you're listening to is one of hundreds of research interviews that I conducted for my new book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. The book is out in early 2023. And if you pre-order now, you can also get a free book club guide and an invite to an online launch event hosted by me. Just go to www.womenwithoutkids.com and enter your order number to get on the list. Now back to the episode. Right, right. And I I love the fact that you spoke about the importance of having support to do this as well. Um, I feel like for a lot of people, I mean, I've been living in New York for the past 10 years. I was in London before that. These are cities where there there are quite a few people on a similar path to me. Right. But I can imagine that there are people who are who are in other kinds of communities where they might well feel like the only one. I'm the only one who doesn't have a child. I'm the only one who doesn't want to be a mom. I'm the only one who's looking at this stuff, you know. And I think I'm I'm really hopeful that by writing, I, I'm gonna really encourage around with the marketing around the book, people to to join in book clubs and kind of find online groups where they can kind of like read this work and engage with some of this work in community. Um 
because I just think, again, that the importance of sharing our stories with one another really, really helps us feel less alone. And it's often the aloneness or feeling, um, again, maybe this is just part of my my intergenerational patterning, the feeling kind of alone and separate in the journey can be one of the hardest things, I think, and not having the support. In addition to having whatever sort of like therapeutic support you might be able to afford, having community, having strong friendships where you can really be honest and vulnerable and hold each other in in this in these realizations is really important, I think. 100%. And I will even speak to the point and from my own personal lived experience, having also lived in New York for about a decade. I grew up in Philadelphia. I spent some time in LA. So right, big cities. Mm. Um, up until the the more recent past, I could be surrounded by the millions of people that live in each of those cities and still feel that deep aloneness. Like you were saying, while yes, when we are in more diverse, um, you know, regions or, 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 you know, kind of geographical locations, we could have access to people who think similarly to us, Mm -hmm. though that's assuming that we're sharing those things about us. And what I hear more often than not is all of the shameful reasons why so many of us, myself included, wasn't even connected to myself enough to know who I really was to even share that with someone. So of course I felt lonely because I really wasn't showing myself. And then I hear from a whole handful of others of, you know, there are all these things about me and I secretively think I'm the only one, but I'm never going to speak it because I'd be so shameful, right? If if I share this, it's too vulnerable to say, I'm so worried that you're going to hear this aspect of me and you're going to abandon me or, you know, deem me unworthy of this relationship. So even in a crowded room, kind of the cliched saying, we can feel so deeply alone. And so much of it is because we're not either A, connected enough to ourself to know our authentic wants, needs, thoughts, feelings. And then even if we do know, so many of us don't feel safe enough to express those things to other people. So part of the reason why I'm so, or the main reason why I'm so impassioned about community healing in general um, is to urge, you know, or kind of create a safe space so that people can begin to experiment. And right now, I mean, I'm very thankful for the technology that allows us to do this virtually because I am one of the things that stuck out to me about the community when I first went online was how international it was, how global Mm -hmm. it was. This wasn't just people in Philadelphia being like, yeah, you're cool. I like these ideas, right? These were people from all around the world. And it was very clear to me that people in you know other countries aren't having this not only resources like i said but this community of support so really creating the safe container where people can feel a little less shameful mm-hmm. can walk walk through the discomfort of being vulnerable in this new authentic way as we're getting the clarity and then to allow ourselves to be supported because that's the thing we all want or at least i have i've heard most of us <laughs> want authentic supportive loving relationships right yet we don't know how to receive that. We don't know how to allow our authentic self to be seen so that it can be supported and loved. And if it is, if someone is showing up in support and love, if we don't feel worthy of that, we're not going to say it or we're going to outright reject it. Um, So ultimately community healing, creating space is for safe relationship, for safe emotional expression, for authentic relationships has been such a part of my journey because I was that lonely human walking through a very crowded city, feeling so disconnected and so alone. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's made me think about um, so much of your work is focused around the concept of reparenting. What you're describing is almost like refamilying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> because that sense of like, it's not okay for me to express my authentic self, or I don't even know my authentic self in order to express it is again, something we learn in childhood. It makes me think about something I learned about during my research called childhood emotional neglect, which is when your caregiver is unable to validate your emotional experience. Mm-hmm. 90% of the time through no fault of their own, not intentionally, but they are either too busy. They don't know how to, they don't know how to recognize and name emotions. Um, they are in some sort of distress themselves. Um, and so when we grow up in an environment where we're not having someone asking us, how are you feeling? What's going on for you? What are you really feeling today? What did that bring up for you? We don't learn how to name our own emotions. When we don't know what we're feeling, we don't know who we are. And so what you're describing, again, kind of comes back to this this imprinting that happens 
in the family home, which again, then we can sort of dig deeper. Well, why is our caregiver unable to show up and validate our emotions? Because they're having to work three jobs because of unequal wealth distribution, (laughs) because they're being abused by their partner, because of unequal gender dynamics, power dynamics in the home that have been inculcated through patriarchy. It's like when you really start to unpack it, it becomes nobody's fault. I think that's one of the reasons I'm so keen to kind of really unpack and unpick. And it's like, None of this is really anybody's fault. So much of it is just about coping mechanisms that have kind of arisen out of really unfortunate conditions. And the more we can kind of acknowledge that, the more we can start to unwind them and kind of as you do so well with your work, particularly with the new book, How to Meet Yourself, it's kind of all about this actually, um, is really helping people, yeah, start to acknowledge their own emotional experience, start to name who I am, because this is how I feel. And this is what I'm experiencing. And within that, to be able to actually develop the capacity to build more authentic relationships and feel in community and feel seen, feel heard. Yes. Yes. And ultimately all of the people, the humans that raised us, I mean, you did a beautiful job, I think, outlining all of the the systems at play. We're also, if we really want to simplify it, raised by other humans that were impacted right by those systems that were at play in terms of their generation and their time. And I'm speaking this again from parents for me who came so post-depression era that Mm -hmm. it was survival. There was actually parenting taught at that time that kids only have right physical needs. I know for a fact, my mom, who was very much, I was a child of childhood emotional neglect. Mm -hmm. My mom, unable to attune to my own feelings of no fault of her own, what I know from her childhood, the little she shared is she was raised by a father who came home for work, put up his newspaper. She had two siblings, two brothers, didn't even speak to the children. Ch- children were to be seen, not heard. And there was no talk about emotional engagement or engagement at all. She mm-hmm. was largely deleted from her relationship with her father, her father then who ended up passing away quite suddenly when my mom was in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. So when I view it through that lens, right, and as you know, simple and maybe counterintuitive. This might sound to some people who think that, oh, well, we should just know how to deal with our emotions. We actually don't necessarily just know. And we're impacted by how we're modeled other people dealing with their emotions. And again, the safety or lack of safety that we feel in our home or we experience to share our emotions. So just imagining my mom, right, probably felt no connection to her parents felt no safety being sharing emotions, let alone any right aspect of herself. So couldn't even navigate her own emotions leading to that overwhelmed shutdown. And now she's faced with having three children and helping, needing to help them navigate their emotions. How can someone navigate emotions or help a child if they can't navigate their own? Mm-hmm. And ultimately that's what it, in my opinion, comes down to. And then of course, right around this system of individuals and modeling, we have all of the socio-political and all of the different other aspects that influence um, what is being modeled in these homes. And the reality of it is most of us aren't showed how to navigate our emotions. We're maybe even urged to cry a little less, be a little less dramatic, right? Oh, Not show that vulnerability, <laughs> right? Or or yeah. maybe show it in anger because that's tough and that's going to make sure you're not violated in the way that I was maybe as a parent or as a child myself. And now I'm from a best intention instructing you to prevent that hurt, right? But I'm maybe not showing you a more adaptive way to cope with all of the other emotions that you're having. So emotional you know, maturity and coping is something that we learn through our environment. And we're only going to be, you know, as successful as the people that are teaching us. And that really then goes down to how do they navigate their emotions? Mm-hmm. Again, just hearing you speaking, I'm so, I'm so grateful and frankly in awe of my mother for stretching her, like really stretching herself. Mm-hmm. It was very challenging for her to juggle de facto single parenthood. Her, her, she and my father separated when I was very young with multiple jobs with raising two kids and finding the time still to actually invest in this and realizing the importance of it. I feel like for her, it was sort of life and death sounds really dramatic, but um, she experienced a lot of, of trauma in her family. And I think for her, it was an imperative. And again, I'm just so grateful that actually she modeled doing this self work as she passed on this as part of my emotional inheritance. Like she modeled the importance of it for me. And I suppose I'm saying this because I just want to like 
publicly declare my gratitude to her and also just realize my realizations around how hard that must have been for her. And I think it's made me really um, not take for granted this, the additional time, space and resource that I have to, to do this work as a woman without kids. And I'm, again, thinking about things like subjects which are so popular now in the public sphere, the idea of reparenting, the idea of inner child work, the idea of um, understanding our attachment theory. So much of it goes back to this concept of parenting how we were parented, recognizing the the um, the emissions there or the things that we didn't get and really just a deep yearning and a craving to be able to give these things to ourselves. And so I guess, I guess I'd love to hear from you just any kind of words of inspiration for any woman without kids, for any woman without kids who's maybe feeling like a lack of purpose or a lack of direction or so, like something is missing in her life. I feel like that's um, something that comes up a lot in these conversations. And for me, I've really made my own self-work a part of my purpose. It fills a big hole in my life. It fills a big hole of meaning. And I've been able to channel it into my work with my books, with my podcasts and the work that I put out into the world. So yeah, can can the healing path become a purpose in and of itself? Absolutely. And just to speak a little bit about um, reparenting and yeah. questions that I get often yeah. um, from parents, you know, around, you know, I want to parent differently. I want to help my child who's struggling in whatever way that I witness them struggling, right? And whatever version of the question that I get asked, um, my response always kind of is somewhat of the same, which is a strong urge to, while of course we want the byproduct effect to be on our children, it's actually to turn that focus on ourselves because reparenting is an action and actually daily actions that we take on our own behalf to be that parent, to meet the needs or to learn, because many of us don't know. I mean, for mm -hmm. me, you know, even discovering this emotional world that for decades I just detached from, I dissociated from, I, you know, kind of kept myself at a distance from. In my late 20s now, Ruby, I was tasked with learning how to cope with my emotions and I didn't know how. Um, so, of course, working through the shame of being a clinical psychologist who can't deal with her emotions and then getting curious and beginning to explore what works for me in terms of caring for my emotions, knowing that what I had modeled to me is what I had been doing and it wasn't necessarily adaptive or it came with consequences. It came with that disconnection that I was talking about, not really feeling truly authentically connected to the world around me because I wasn't, because I was so emotionally suppressed. So, Reparenting, again, while a lot of us intend to do it as the byproduct of impacting our children, what do I say to them? How do I intervene when they're having an upset breakdown or when they're dysregulated? The answer counterintuitively is, what are you doing when you're dysregulated? Can you maintain a safe, calm, balanced space so that even if your child is freaking out because they're you know, in an emotional upset or, as I say it in neuro neuroscience terms, nervous system dysregulation, they're having a moment of dysregulation, can you maintain that safe space and help them? That's what co-regulation is, allowing your safe nervous system to communicate with their threatened nervous system and help them come back into calm. Um, that's the work that we're doing. We mm -hmm. think it's about intervening or saying the thing to de-escalate. Really, it's about doing the thing that's going to help us de-escalate. So whether or not we even translate that to children that we might choose not to have, reparenting, in my opinion, is for all of us adults who have that little wounded inner child, the pain, the wounding, those adaptations and ways that we've learned to cope with our emotions or with our overwhelming experiences that maybe aren't serving us. It's showing up in action to care for my physical body because that's where my that's going to impact my nervous system's ability to tolerate stress and to return to that safe space. That also means to really get honest with how am I dealing with emotions? Am I just telling my child to breathe deeply and calm down when they're upset and I'm over here screaming and yelling when I'm upset? I'm going to be an unsafe object or experience for them in my own upset. So that's going to override what I'm saying in that moment. So mm -hmm. Reparenting. Um, my suggestion for anyone listening is to really get conscious of the habits and patterns that we've carried from our own childhood that aren't 
serving us and our current environment. And to that's why I proclaim self-healing. It's not an absence of relationship. It's not being on my individual island and screw other people. It's learning how to be a safe space so that when I'm relating to someone else, I'm safe. I'm authentically who I am and I'm communicating that safety for them so that they can be authentically who they are. That's, in my opinion, how we create change. Um, And I say this on the heels of a lot of times I see misinterpretations around this even concept of self-healing, that it's, I'm yelling from the individualistic West of screw relationships. We actually, we can't get away from relationships. We are wired and we need socially, it's how we evolved as a species to connect with other people. The issue is most of us are connecting or, or trying to or are disconnected from other people and we're not serving ourselves. We're squashing mm. parts of ourselves. We're playing a role. We're not authentic and we're not safe when we're making those connections. And so, so focusing on this, like making this really part of your daily work, if it's going to become a big part of your life, has the huge value of what you're putting back out into the world. Ultimately, the kind of, um, again, I use that term ripple effect of this work can be helping to create, and I talk about this in the book, a sense of safety, which is so lacking from our world for so many reasons, for so many material reasons. But to begin at least with creating a sense of like emotional safety is I think huge. It has so much potential for healing collectively as well. Just this feeling of like, it's okay. Things are okay. I'm okay. It just has such such a huge, huge potential, I think. It's only, Ruby, when we feel okay, just to go back to a word you said earlier, passion, yeah. purpose. Yeah. We can that can only I, I used creativity earlier in our discussion, but passion, purpose. I I didn't I heard those words when I was in my 20s, but it was never anything I thought. I had because the reality was I didn't have access to it. When we're in survival mode, passion, purpose, that's not a priority. Mm-hmm. Living through today, as extreme as that sounds, that's what our nervous system is responding or reacting to. So to, to kind of answer your question in terms of passion and purpose, it is only when we're safe can we access that creativity, that passion, that purpose, that desire within us. And then we obviously have the opportunity to choose to share that with our world around us. But that's shut down when we're in survival mode. That's not our priority. We're not even going to be able to access. Um, the, and it will just remain a word we read in a book. Oh yeah, passion, purpose. Wow, they have that. I don't. I assure everyone that somewhere inside of you, um, you likely, your mind and body doesn't feel safe enough to allow yourself to reconnect with that place. Absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting. I see that with my with my book clients. I work as a manuscript coach in my kind of like daily work. And just this fear, this fear of of putting my creative my creative mm-hmm. output into the world is so so prevalent among people. And I think that's yeah comes back down to this: how will I be received? Is it safe to be me? Is it safe to express myself? And we're we're missing so much creativity and innovation as a result of people yes. feeling shut down in that area. I think. Yes. So as I mentioned, your new book is called How to Meet Yourself, and it's a workbook that really guides people through how to do the work, which is the title of your first book. Um, And I think a huge part of me ultimately making peace with being a woman without kids, because although I've shared that I knew from an early age that this was my path, it was a path that was littered with self-doubt, self-questioning, self-gaslighting, shame, stigma. Like it was not a comfortable path, even though it was my path, but me finding my peace with it and feeling really comfortable in my skin as a woman without kids has been so much about just identifying who I am, what makes me who I am, what I need, what I enjoy, what I'm good at, and that that doesn't include parenting and that that's like, okay. (laughs) And I also talk about how for me, a huge part of coming to that place of self-knowledge was about quitting drinking. And like, obviously there's a huge body of work that I've created around that process and the importance of that. But I am... I wonder if you have any advice perhaps for somebody who's maybe a little bit further, not quite so far along this path of just kind of someone for someone who might have doubted their choices, for someone who might have second guessed what felt feels like a natural instinct, even though that natural instinct goes away against the kind of cultural conditioning about what our life should look like. I suppose it gets a bit into this idea of like 
yeah, for anyone who's who's living a quote unquote deviant path, whether it's around their sexuality, whether it's around being a non-drinker, whether it's around um, not having kids, any kind of a path that diverges from the norm, I think can come with so much questioning of the self. And so any advice you have for people to just really kind of tap into like, this is my authentic truth and that is okay. Yes. Would be really helpful. <laughs> this goes back and wraps really beautifully into that early environment. And if we didn't have, like you were describing um, in the context of an emotion or in childhood emotional neglect, if we didn't have mm-hmm. someone see us, right. And reflect back and affirm the way we thought our, you know, the, what we imagined, what we felt um, in any given moment who validated, you know, us, we then, you use the word gaslight, we develop a habit of distrusting ourselves because as children, we will always defer to those that we need to meet our needs, which are our parents. They will always trump. And as children, we do, we're very intuitive. We have instincts, we get a sense of what's going on. But if that doesn't match what's being affirmed or illustrated or even directly communicated to us, we won't choose ourselves as being accurate, we'll push down, we'll squash, and we'll begin to doubt and invalidate and gaslight our reality. So the first offering I want anyone who is connected to that intuitive, right, the instinct, but they think they really want is a huge um, success to be connected to what you really want, even if you do come to the awareness that it is in opposition to what other people think you should have or what society thinks you should have. That's a big victory because so many of us haven't yet, even as adults, made space to allow what we really want to even be part of the picture. And then we go through a self-censoring process. Like we were kind of somewhat talking about earlier, shame, why reasons why I won't share it. How will you receive me or not? Will this relationship be impacted if I you know, speak my truth to you? And a lot of us for different reasons, often impacted by our childhood environments where it wasn't safe to speak our mind, we, we don't, we self-censor. And then of course, if we do walk through that discomfort and speak whatever it is, you know, regardless of how the impact or how it will be received by another, then we open ourselves up to the very real reality that a lot of us live as being misinterpreted, of having our truth or our ideas diminished, um, argued away, um, invalidated in another way by another person, being told that we're wrong um, or whatever it is. So learning how do I talk a lot about learning how to tolerate um, being misunderstood ultimately Mm -hmm. and learning Mm -hmm. how to stand in that truth regardless of how other people are receiving it. Um, And that's incredibly challenging. So one of the hopes for my workbook is really to take anyone, wherever you are on your journey, through that process of reconnection by first introducing that this habitual way of being is, is habit. I introduce a concept called habit self. It's all of the different things that we repeat daily, whether or not it's how we physically care for our bodies or how we're tending to our emotions. Again, as we've been talking about, understanding that they are impacted. They were created in one environment and unless we've become conscious, are repeated. They are how we are right now, but that, that doesn't mean that's who we necessarily are. And once we create that space, then we can begin to reconnect with. So even if you are someone who doesn't really know what they want yet, as I once was, being able to reconnect with those authentic longings, desires, wants, things that we want to say in and around the world. And then of course, developing the confidence over time, the se- the ability to self-validate so that you can show up and say, this is my truth. I know, you know, you, you it might not be your truth. I know you might even react in some way to hearing this truth and that's okay. I have the confidence to stand and to be and to express authentically who I am, regardless of, of how it's being received around me. Yeah. Amazing. And again, I have to give gratitude to my parents. They must've got something really right, given that I have despite the self-doubt, always been able to really remain true to myself and true to what I know is right for me, even when so many of the choices that are right for me place me outside of the group, make me other me, make me somehow deviant or weird. (laughs) So thank you again, mom and dad, for whatever you did that I can't remember that you got so right. (laughs) Okay. My last question, just to finish up. I do think it's just, I'm always really interested in looking at sort of like the big picture and 
the the patterns that form when we're able to get that kind of big picture perspective. And I just find it really fascinating that this steep drop off in the birth rate that we've seen over the past 100 years correlates very directly with a bigger increased awareness around the importance of mental health, emotional well-being, beginning with even like, you know, Sigmund Freud's ideas becoming popularized in like the 1920s, right? A hundred years ago, we see an emergence of sort of like self-help in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And now this new kind of iteration of this, which is around this self-healing concept that you're such a proponent and and figurehead of. Um, And it does really feel to me like there is just a sense, an intuitive sense that it is actually on us to, it's time to like pause with the reproduction of the species while we take some time, we take a breather to actually clean up some of the shit (laughs) that we are here tasked with cleaning up before we go ahead and just bring more people, more people, more of the same onto the planet. And I guess to close, I'd just love to hear, it's quite a far out theory, I suppose, but I kind of like to hear your thoughts on that. I think ultimately, whatever choice um, we're talking about in life and of the multitude of choices that we can make, I'm always a, and will always remain a proponent of doing so consciously. Um, whatever choice it is that you make, it, there's a very big difference in my opinion of, well, I'm just making that choice because just along the lines of what we were talking about, it's my autopilot. It's what I was, you know, it's what I've always done. It's what I think I have to do for all of these different reasons without that consciousness, that assessment. And we can apply any choice, the choice of children, which of course is a very big choice like we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, or any choice we make throughout the day, what what to eat for lunch, what time to go to bed. In my opinion, if we are doing so as a conscious being and in consciousness that allows us to not only connect with our body and what does our body want in a moment and how are we feeling about this choice in that moment, if we're doing so from that conscious space, in my opinion, we're always doing so from an empowered place. So when we're talking, you know, kind of societally or globally or collectively now about a decision as big as having children, I think that wherever you are in terms of your age or your development and wherever you are in considering this choice, if you're doing so from that conscious vantage point, um, which usually involves like being the conscious being who can access that place. And again, while this is something that, you know, I can say so easily become conscious, it's actually an embodied practice. So much of us, so many of us are used to living in that autopilot that the the prefrontal cortex, which is really simply the space that allows us to right, kind of think in terms of planning for a future that could look different from our past. It doesn't, we're not, we don't fire it up. If I really, I'm really simplifying neuroscience concepts here, but it's not fired up consistently enough. It's our brain is actually functioning differently. So while it might sound so easy to just, oh, just make conscious choices actually means embodying that state of consciousness and really, so to speak to your point, taking the time, hitting the pause, coming to the awareness of the unconscious ways and factors that have been contributing to the decisions that you've been making this whole time Mm -hmm. and now beginning to practice doing so from that conscious place. And once you then do, whether or not it's to have children like you thought you wanted or not to have children like you maybe once thought you did want to, as long as you're doing so from that conscious place, I always believe you're doing so from an empowered place because then you have the opportunity, right, to assess what happens, right? The outcomes of these different choices that you're making and then to use those outcomes as further information to continue to you to allow you to make more and more conscious choices because that's something interesting about choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also learned in listening to the way people think about it. And of course, we're not talking about as Women are getting up in age and obviously reproductive uh, windows are closing. More often than not, choices aren't infinite or, or aren't aren't finite, I should say. Mm-hmm. There isn't one choice and you're never going to not get that opportunity again. Chances are a similar choice will come back around and present an opportunity at a later time. And if you can use the choice you made in option A or iteration A, right, to inform now, maybe you want to make a different choice now moving forward in a conscious way. All of that is information to empower you to then make the choices that are ultimately best for you. I just see so many of us humans having this idea that, oh, that was the one time I had this choice or opportunity. Of course, that mm. applies in some some circumstances, mm. though, in my opinion and in my experience, more often than not, choices present themselves. And if we do have and allow ourselves to 
assess the choices that we're making from that conscious vantage point, we're always going to empower ourselves to find our way toward the choices that are in alignment for us. Right. And I guess choices that are in alignment for us ultimately are going to be in alignment for the collective on some level. This is what you're talking about in terms of consciousness, again, to track it back around my my ideas about the kind of progress we've witnessed over the past century. I think the raising of consciousness about who we are as humans and how we're living our lives and how we're connected and not and the kinds of influences that are shaping our lives has just risen exponentially because of globalization, because of the advent of technology, TV, even pre-internet TV was such a portal into this kind of awareness. Um, so yeah, I do feel like we're, our consciousness is being raised in real time and more people choosing consciously not to have kids is a reflection of that. Yes. Yes. And then speak to a point, I think that we kind of visited on earlier too, having in the internet, you know, being, I think, an amazing tool for this having the visibility of those mm-hmm. communities of people. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have to be like I was in New York, secretively wondering if anyone else is like me. So many of us can go online and find the hashtag or the community of people who are entertaining or living the choice that we're entertaining yeah. and see that alignment or that similarity in and of itself. So I think that that's one of the inherent um, benefits for as as much of as yeah. technology gets a bad rap Um, I do think that social media and this opportunity to see and connect um, with other humans who are, again, living into some choices that we might be trying on for size can be really incredibly, incredibly helpful. So to speak to that point, thank you um, for putting out. um, I don't think I realized how much I needed to read your book, um, Women Without Kids, kind of intuitively, because that just was my journey. Mm -hmm. Um, And then seeing and hearing, and I just felt infinitely more connected to you as a human, knowing that similarity, and even as this conversation has evolved, hearing all of the similar aspects of our journey. Um, And again, I think that internet and these virtual communities are giving people that opportunity to, whether or not you're going to experiment with these new choices yet, the opportunity to observe and to witness others who are, to maybe be that model for that person or that way of being that we might not have access to in our immediate communities. Such a hugely important point of many, many. I think this is probably an episode that people will want to listen to several times to be able to let all of this incredible information and insight sink in. Thank you again so much for joining me and for all the work you've done in this space. Um, Like I said, the new book is called How to Meet Yourself and it's brilliant and so accessible. Um, So yeah, thank you again, Nicole. Thank you so much, Ruby. I was super excited to have the opportunity to reconnect with you, your community, and of course to take out take a look at your new book and I cannot wait till that lives in the world this year as well that was my conversation with Dr Nicole LaPera whose new book How to Meet Yourself the workbook for self-discovery will be out on December 6th I'll include a link in the show notes I'm also incredibly grateful to Nicole for providing an advance endorsement for women without kids which she told me she read in one sitting she said Ruby's book offers a compassionate exploration into what can be a highly loaded and emotional topic, the choice whether or not to have children. She explores the different factors that contribute to this decision, while her honest and vulnerable sharing of her personal story inspires deep self-reflection in readers. Women Without Kids is a must-read for anyone seeking a full understanding of all the dynamics that play into this significant life choice. Thank you, Nicole. You can, of course, pre-order Women Without Kids now. And if you enter your order details at www.womenwithoutkids.com, you will also receive a free book club guide to accompany the book. Thanks, as always, for listening. If this episode resonated, please share it with a friend. And don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you are listening to help people find the series. As always, the Women Without Kids podcast features original music, and is edited by Allo Audio. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.